Let's, though, now open our Bibles up to Romans chapter 14 as we are working our way through this glorious epistle that the Lord has given to us through our brother and friend, the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 14, we are picking up where we left off last week. That has us in verse 13. So once you've found it, let's stand up together in honor of the word of the Lord, in submission to the word of the Lord. And hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us. Thank you for your spirit who who breathed out these words and now dwells within your people, Lord, confirming your truth to our heart, applying these eternal truths to our lives that we might be transformed more and more into the likeness of our Savior. Lord, I pray for myself as I proclaim your words, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we call on you by your spirit to do that which only you can do, to open blinded eyes, to give life to dead hearts, to give hearing to our ears. We pray, Lord, that your people would be edified and encouraged and strengthened and convicted. We pray for those that don't know you, that in the proclamation of your word today, They would hear your voice, call their name, and they would turn from sin and trust in your Son and be saved. We pray this knowing, Lord, that this is a work that only you can accomplish, and so we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Learning to walk as a child is a treacherous undertaking. Those of you that have had kids and have watched kids as they learn to walk, they go from, we, we celebrate things like, they rolled over today. They were on their back, and then they were on their stomach. It was glorious. It was magnificent. Then they start to crawl a little bit, and then they start to stand, and then they start to take steps. And as parents, we do our best to help them in every stage of this development. We, we hold their arms while they walk, and then we move to, they're just holding our fingers in their little hands while they walk, and we're walking along with them. We sit on the floor as moms and dads while they stumble in between us, knowing it's just soft carpet there for them to fall on if they fall. Eventually they learn to walk. Eventually they learn to run. They learn to talk, and we regret that at times. What we don't do is put obstacles in their way. I mean, not if we, not if we love them and aren't abusive. 
Uh, we, we, we move the coffee tables out of the way so they don't hit their head on sharp, sharp corners. We don't leave open fires burning in their walk, walking areas. We do what we can to remove obstacles. We want to protect them. We want to encourage their development. And that's the kind of thing Paul has in mind here in Romans 14. How can we encourage one another in our spiritual development? So as we've been going through Romans chapter 14, Paul has been instructing us how it is that we are to live together in unity in the church as Christians. The Christian life is not a life of isolation. It is a life of community. We've been placed together in a family. We've been called in the church to have deep fellowship with one another with other believers. And and we've been given, as Paul has shown us in Romans, this profound unity with Christ. We are hidden in him, but that's not the only unity we've received. We've received a profound and deep union and unity with one another's, with one another in the faith. And so Paul's been telling us how it is that we can walk out that unity. This, This spiritual reality, as we look around this room and we see Other believers, we are profoundly united together, inseparably united together, but the the walking out of that union can be a little tricky sometimes. And so Paul is giving us instruction on how to do that. And specifically, he's been zeroing in on what, what are called matters of indifference. These gray areas, these things that are not explicitly spelled out for us in Scripture. We don't we don't have commands telling us we have to do these things, and we don't have Laws telling us that we're not allowed to do certain things. And perhaps as we've looked at this, these issues over the last few weeks, things have been solidifying in your mind a little bit about some of these gray areas and what your convictions are and why you hold them. And you're figuring out where you stand on all kinds of different issues and why you hold to the particular convictions that you do. And that is very good. But... You need to know this. That is not enough. It's not enough just to know where I land on all these different issues. This passage this morning that we are dealing with is not about where I land on a particular issue. This passage is all about influence. It's all about the consideration of the effect of my choices in these matters of indifference, in these gray areas, in these areas of spiritual Christian liberty, It's all about the effect of my choices on the spiritual vitality of Christians around me. And so Paul has been using these two categories of people to talk to us about this. He's talked specifically about food, what we're allowed to eat and what we're not allowed to eat. He's talked about the observing of special days, whether we must observe them or whether we're free to do it if we want or not do it if we want. And he's had these two categories of people, the weak and the strong. In respect to these preferential areas of Christian liberty, there are those who are free in their conscience pertaining to certain things. They're free to do them, or they are free to not do them. And there are those who feel conscience-bound in these areas. They feel conscience-bound to abstain from eating certain things or drinking certain things. They they feel conscience-bound to participate in these Old Testament Jewish holy days, whatever the issue may be. And so this morning in our text, he turns the corner a little bit and he points right at the strong. And the truth is, for every one of us, and we've talked about this over the past few weeks, we consider ourselves the strong. 
Whatever the issue is, you consider your opinion the strong and faithful position, and your brother who disagrees with you, you're like, well, he's wrong. So when Paul talks about the strong and the weak, he's the weak, I need to bear with him. He's got issues. So we should just say, Paul's talking to me this morning. But what, what he has to say is, is, it's not for them, it's for me. And what he says to us is this, consider your weaker brother. Consider your weaker brother. Don't put obstacles in front of them. Don't cause them to stumble. And he gives us really five principles to govern our use of Christian liberty. And he puts the burden on the strong. And again, that's just all of us. That's how we think of ourselves. Those who have more liberty. And he tells them how to use that liberty rightly. So these are things we must all be committed to. They, they must become convictions for us such that we walk according to them. And as we do, we will, we will experience more and more unity with one another. First thing we must do is begin with a determination. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So again, that word therefore, that should always jump off the page to us. It means whatever I said, this is a conclusion to that. that. What I am about to say now follows directly from what I said before. And what did Paul just say to us? What did we look at last week? Well, there's going to be this final adjudication for every Christian where we will stand before God. We will give an accounting for ourselves before God. And so following that profound, sobering truth, Paul turns this corner and gives us this overarching command we see here in verse 13. Don't pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather you need to decide something. Some translations say determine. You need to determine something. It's, it's a play on words here. This, this word decide is the same word as judge that Paul's using here. So he says, don't judge your brother, rather Judge yourself. And what's the judgment that we're supposed to make as it regards ourselves in this context as Paul's talking? What serious determination is it that we need to make, each one of us as Christians? And it's this, this is what Paul tells us. It's to not put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. We need to all commit to that. We need to all determine that right up front. That by my use or unuse of Christian liberty, I will not scandalize my brother. I won't put a trap in front of them. I won't cause them to stumble. Worse yet, I won't cause them to sin. We need to determine that in our own minds. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You and I must make this very serious, sober determination. We, we must pursue our Christian liberties, not casually, not flippantly, not selfishly, but with a personal conviction about how the careless use of my liberty might just negatively affect my brother or sister in the Lord. We, we must make a determination to judge ourselves in this, am I in the exercise of my freedom putting an obstacle out in front of my weaker brother? And what Paul says to us is, you mu you must determine not to do that. Now we might do it sometimes, but we need to determine that we're not going to. 
That has to be our goal. It has to be something we actually think about. I will not be a hindrance to my brother or sister as, as, as best as I can. As the Spirit of God helps me, I, I will not. We, we, we need to commit ourselves to that, first of all. Secondly, we must understand how, how the conscience actually works. He says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So Paul, again, lets us know in this debate that's going on over what we can eat and what we can't eat, can we eat meat? Some of this meat that we weren't allowed to eat under Old Testament law, can we eat pork? Can we eat bacon? Can we eat this meat that's been bought in the market that comes from a cow that's been sacrificed to an idol? And Paul says, I'm 100% positive. He, he makes these three statements to let us know. I know. I'm persuaded. In the Lord Jesus. It doesn't get any stronger than that. There's no doubt about this. I'm 100% sure. I'm fully correct. It's as if the Lord Jesus himself is telling you this is the right answer. You're allowed to eat whatever you want. You can eat the meat. It's not unclean. He says nothing is unclean in itself. Now when Paul makes a statement like that, we're tempted to just lift that little statement out and defend whatever thing it is that we want to do. Well, nothing's unclean in itself. We do this a lot with Paul's statements. We need to keep the context of the whole book of Romans in mind when we read this statement. Nothing is unclean in itself. If we don't, we're going to make some serious mistakes. Is Paul saying nothing's unclean? You can do whatever you want. Nobody can judge you. You can just absolutely whatever you want. There's nothing in this whole world that's unclean. It's like those stupid arguments you see in bumper stickers and on Facebook that just make you want to lose your mind. Don't like abortions? Don't get one. Don't support gay marriage? Don't have one. These things that are so stupid and don't make any sense, as if, as if our argument is just we don't personally want to have an abortion. Is that what Paul's saying, though? Nothing's unclean, just whatever the issue for you, but nothing out there is actually unclean. That's absolutely not what Paul is saying. We dare not think that that's what he's saying. Paul has been very clear in Romans and elsewhere. There are things that are wrong. They are wrong not just for you. They are wrong for everyone, everywhere, at all times. They are wickedness. They are sinfulness. It's, it's the exact same teaching that Jesus himself gives in Mark chapter 7. In verse 15 of Mark 7, Jesus says, There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Well, that sounds a lot like there's nothing unclean out there. But then Jesus goes on. That's not all he has to say about the matter. Just like this one statement, nothing is unclean in itself, is all that Paul has to say about what's clean and unclean. Jesus goes on in verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus says, there's nothing that goes into you that defiles you, but here's a giant list of things that are completely unacceptable for all people everywhere of all time. No Christian is free to do any of these things. And so Paul doesn't mean here that we should just do whatever feels right to us. Follow our hearts. 
That's not what Paul's saying. Sexual immorality, murder, slander, this whole vice list we read from Jesus. Paul has several vice lists. All, none of these things any Christian anywhere is free to do. It doesn't matter whether they feel good about it or not. They're not matters of indifference. They are not gray areas. They are inherently evil. They're not matters of conscience. They are sinful for everyone. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking in this context about things that are neutral in and of themselves. They are matters of indifference. They are not unclean in and of themselves. They are not wicked in and of themselves. And so notice then the second half of verse 14. He says, nothing is unclean in itself, but... And but's one of those words that also should jump off the page for us. But always serves in a sentence to sort of turn the first half of the sentence upside down. I always use the example, I'm not a racist, but whatever the second half of that sentence is going to be is going to be profoundly racist. That's how that word works. And so Paul says, nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So if you think something is a sin for you, guess what? It is a sin for you. You'd be violating your own conscience. You'd be doing what you believe to be sinful. And Paul's going to tell us later in this chapter, whatever isn't done in faith is sin. So it could be something completely innocuous. Something completely neutral. If I go out that door, I'd be sinning. I have to go out that door. Well, guess what? If you violate your conscience, you've sinned. Because you think that. Because you think that way. And the rest of us are going, you're insane. But that doesn't change how the conscience functions. It doesn't change anything about that. And so if you're partaking in something that you think is a Christian freedom, you look around at other Christians, they all seem to be participating in this thing and, and... they seem free to do it, and, and you think, well, it must be a Christian freedom. But, but unlike Paul here, who Paul says, I am 100% sure. I'm persuaded. I'm convinced. In the Lord Jesus, you can eat whatever you want. If you're not like Paul, you look around at Christians participating in these things, and you go, I don't feel good about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because they're all doing it. It must be okay. But you're not persuaded. You're not convinced. You still feel like it's wrong to do it. Guess what? It's a sin. That's what Paul's telling us. That's how the conscience works. It's not a sin for any of them. Just for you. We have to recognize this about ourselves, first and foremost. If we want to live righteously, we can't go around violating our conscience. Now, our conscience needs to be informed by the truth of Scripture. It's one of the great reasons we have one another. It's one of the great reasons that God has placed us in the church. So it's just not us and our Bible all alone somewhere in a cabin coming up with crazy ideas about what it all means. God has given us each other to reason with each other, to help us walk in wisdom. If if you think it's a sin for you to walk out those doors and you have to use the other ones, then I'm going to want to talk you out of that OCD tendency at some point with Scripture. That's not the same thing as judging a person, to to, to help them walk in greater freedom and greater joy, a greater experience of of gospel truth and salvation. But we need to understand this not just about our own conscience, we really need to understand it about one another, how the conscience works. 
That we really are bound by our conscience, bound to our conscience. If, if my brother, if my sister really believes that something is tainted by sin, then they are not free to do it. And I should not try to talk them into doing it as long as their conscience is bound. I should never tempt them to do it. It would be a sin for them to do it in the state they are currently in. Better to walk alongside them and help them in their understanding of the word of God, their understanding of justification, their understanding of righteousness, than to try to persuade them to violate their own conscience. And so how how do we come to a conviction about these matters, about these areas of indifference that aren't spelled out for us? How can we walk alongside somebody? First of all, we start with the commitment that says, I don't want to sin. That seems like a no-brainer. But we need that commitment. I don't want to sin. I want to be pleasing to the Lord. I want to glorify the Lord in all that I do. And for matters of our own conscience, the question gets answered pretty quickly when we just say, can I do this thing to the glory of the Lord? Our conscience will speak up very, very quickly on the matter to us. Secondly, though, we need to know our Bible. We don't want to be bound to an uninformed conscience. These poor saints in Rome were missing out on bacon because of an uninformed conscience that wasn't informed by the word of God. We don't want that. We want to be informed by scripture. We need the mind of Christ on these issues. What does the Bible say to this? How does it speak to it? Does it speak directly to it? Does it speak directly uh, to a principle that applies here? We need to investigate. We need to ask other Christians. You see a Christian walking in freedom and you ask them to help you get there. How did you come to this conclusion from Scripture? And maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't come to this conclusion from Scripture. Maybe they're just doing it because it's something they wanted to do and they've seen other people doing it and you're serving them now by causing them to examine themselves. We walk, we, God has given us to each other to walk together. But you must be convinced that your freedom honors the Lord. But we need more than that. We need more than just that knowledge. There is something more important than just being right. So Paul here says, I'm right about this. The strong are the ones who are right about this in this matter of whether you can eat meat or not. But there's something more important than just being right. And that brings us to this third principle. We must walk together then in loving consideration of one another. Look at verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. John MacArthur says, A weak Christian can be hurt from watching another Christian say or do something he considers sinful. The hurt is even deeper still if the offending believer is someone the weak Christian admired and respected. A weak Christian can also be hurt when, by word or example, he is led by a stronger brother to go against his own conscience. A Christian whose careless use of liberty causes such hurt to other believers is no longer walking according to love. The question is not just, what am I allowed to do? The question's okay. We need, we need to know the answer to that question as Christians. That's, 
Part of maturity is to be biblically informed about how we ought to live, the things we are free to do and the things we are not free to do. We want to know what pleases the Lord. We want to know what glorifies him. But there is another question we need to ask that goes beyond what am I allowed to do? And the question is, how can I best love my brother? How can I best love my sister? We must live with the conviction, I will do no harm to my brother or my sister. And your freedoms can hurt others. So use them in a way that is governed by loving consideration. The old adage says, my right to swing my fist ends where the other man's nose begins. At first we don't mind that. But the truth is their nose is a lot closer to us than we think it is. It's a lot closer to us than we feel comfortable with sometimes. And we, we feel a bit hindered by just how close their nose is to us. It confronts our American individualism. We are a people whose motto is, don't you tell me what to do. Don't you dare judge me. Don't you dare restrict me. Not in any way. So even as Christians, we'll make excuses for why we don't walk in love. And as a pastor for many years now, I've gotten to hear all of them over and over and over and over again to the point that I'm not super impressed by them as if I ever was. But we make these excuses. I'm just keeping it real. I'm just being my true, authentic self. This is just who I am. Take it or leave it. We do want to be authentic, don't we? We don't want to be fakes. We don't want to be fraudulent. We want to be real. We need to be real with one another. But guys, we've all got deodorant on. I, I hope we do. Just do. Do on Sundays. So, so clearly, we understand there is a kind of authenticity that's just unsavory to put out there in public. And so we do some things to mitigate against that realness. It's not always appropriate to be certain kinds of authentic. Not in every environment. In fact, the Proverbs say the fool is the one who gives full vent to his anger. So not even when we're alone. Not every setting is the right setting to exercise your Christian liberties. And your Christian freedoms. We say things like, I'm just saying whatever's on my mind. That's just who I am. Whatever's on my mind, then I'm going to speak that. That's my truth, and I'm being real. Well, you know who else says whatever's on their mind? Four-year-olds. It's not a mark of maturity. It's not a badge of honor. It's not a virtue. It is a sign of immaturity to speak Whatever's on your mind all the time, like you're just constantly throwing up on everybody around you. We need to grow out of that. We need to consider our weaker brother and how we might be hurting them. Now, when Paul's talking about the, the believer who is being hurt by the actions, by the freedoms of another Christian, he's not talking about the selfish person who just wants to run everyone's life. Because we are in danger of taking this passage and this teaching here to a place where the weakest, most immature Christians run everything and control everyone's life. Well, I'm offended by what you do, brother. So you... That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about the pearl-clutching 
selfish, self-absorbed people who just want to run everyone's life. The weaker brother here is not just someone who wants to impose their own selfish ideals on everyone else. The, The weaker brother here is one who is genuinely grieved, Paul says. And Paul says in verse 15, they're in danger of being destroyed by our actions. This is a real thing. He's been brought to great sorrow because he has been scandalized by the carelessness of our actions. And Paul reminds us here, Christ died for this person. Don't don't destroy the one that Christ died for. They matter deeply to him. They should matter deeply to you. And if Christ gave up his life for them, surely you can give up a pork chop at dinner for them. That's Paul's point. Christ loves them. Christ died for them. They are scandalized by the certain exercise of your freedoms. So don't scandalize them. Don't put an obstacle in front of them. One commentator says, don't think more of your food than Christ thought of his life. Oh, he died for them, but no, no, no. I'm free to do this, and nobody's telling me otherwise. We as Christians are called to live in community, together. Christ didn't save you and then give you a whole bunch of freedoms and go, now exercise these all alone on your own. You're your own person. Don't even think of anybody else. That's not what he did. He placed us together in a family. And we know living together as a family brings with it certain restrictions on behavior. This is the nature of family. It's the nature of community. We're not our own. We belong to God first, and then we belong to each other. What affects, what I do affects you. What you do affects me. And so if our freedoms are more important to us than other Christians are, we are thinking and we are living in a way that is decidedly unchristian. If I care more about my freedoms and my rights than I care about my brothers and my sisters and their spiritual vitality and life. It's not how Christians think. We're called to consider one another in every single decision that we make. Kent Hughes says, living the Christian life is very much like walking a tightrope. As you walk the rope, you hold the balancing poles in your hands. The one end is your Christian freedom. The other is care and concern for your brother. The one end is liberty. The other end is love. So it's not just a matter of what am I free to do. We must also ask what serves my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Fourth, then, we are to maintain an eternal perspective. Look now in verse 16 as he continues on. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's that word again, so or therefore. He's giving a a summary inference to what has come before it. If you want to value your brother or your sister, then you, most, then you must value what is actually eternally valuable over what is temporarily permissible. That's the call for us, to live in community and, and walk out our unity with one another. It is to value what is eternally valuable over what is temporarily permissible. 
And so Paul says, don't let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. Literally, the word is to, to be blasphemed, to be slandered. Look, bacon's objectively good. It just is. That's not, that's not a point for argument. It's an objective truth of the universe. So don't let it be spoken of as evil by using it to hurt your brother. That's what Paul says. A tool used rightly is a beautiful gift from God. But if it is used wrongly to murder, how ugly is that tool? How awful is that tool? How awful has it become? So what Paul's telling us, and he, and he gives us this explanation in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If we're going to walk in true unity with one another, we, we need to remember what the kingdom of God is all about. Christians are citizens of this kingdom, the kingdom of God. We are citizens. And so we must live by the priorities of that kingdom here and now. We belong to the king. We represent the king. That kingdom is our eternal home. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are citizens of another kingdom. In this earth, we are sojourners. We are exiles. We're ambassadors. And so if we don't act in an honorable way, the gospel is dishonored. If we don't walk in love, the gospel is made to look unloving. When Christians go around beating their chest, saying, no one's going to take my freedoms from me, the gospel is made to look arrogant. We're ambassadors. We're ambassadors of a kingdom whose priorities are righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. These are the things that ought to mark our lives. These are the things that ought to characterize our relationships in the church. Not gossip and slander and mockery and judgment and frustration and contempt or whatever other thing. These affinities we have because we're similar people. That's not what marks us in the church and our relationships. It is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. These are, these are fruits of the Holy Spirit that he produces in believers. Practice lived out righteousness. Peace with one another. Joy in and with each other. These are works of the Spirit in His people as He's placed us together in the family of the local church. And these are the things that will last forever. Meanwhile, Christian freedoms on different matters are all going to go away eventually. We need to focus not on the trivial things at the expense of the crucial things. It's vital that we maintain this eternal perspective. What are the things that will last forever? The bacon debate is not going to last forever. The beer debate is not going to last forever. The smoking debate is not going to last. The tattoo debate, name the issue. 
They are not going to last forever. They will one day go away when the eternal is fully realized. So why not focus on the eternal? What are those things that will never go away? How does something good come to be slandered? When does what is good for you turn into something evil? Paul tells us not to let that happen. Well, it's when that good thing trips up another Christian. It now has a bad reputation. When the good thing is elevated to a level of importance that should be reserved only for eternal things, that's when a good thing is slandered. When it becomes as important to me as righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When our identity is, is found in it. When it becomes a thing I just cannot let go of. You can have my bacon when you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. I think that's the expression. That's what I said at breakfast the other morning. When our freedom becomes more important to us than our fellow Christians' spiritual well-being, when, when we will not give it up for the sake of a brother, when we will not give it up for the sake of a sister, those good things become idolatrous and evil. And Paul says, don't let that happen to good things. There's no sin in abstaining. You haven't lost one ounce of eternal value if you don't eat the pork chop to use the context Paul's speaking into but there may well be sin in partaking if it hurts your brother or your sister if you injure your brother you are sacrificing things of eternal value for temporary pleasures And really, we've missed the entire point of the Christian life when we boil it all down to the question of what can I do and what can I not do? That, that misses the point entirely. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, Paul says. The, the legalist stresses, here's what you can't do. And the libertine says, look at what you can do. And both of them have missed Christ. Christianity is not made up of the externals. But external only religion is, is so much easier than actually following Christ is. That's why we constantly fall into it. It's what's natural to us. It, it's the kind of thing that natural man comes up with. It appeals to natural man. It says we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can just follow this list of do's and don'ts. And we just try our best to manage that list. But, but to surrender your whole life at the level of heart motivation where your every thought is governed by the lordship of Christ and loving consideration of our brother, that requires supernatural power. That's not the stuff of natural man. It requires a new heart. It requires a new birth. It requires a new mind. It, it, it requires supernatural activity of the Spirit of God in our lives that is beyond our natural ability. But friends, that is the Christian life. That brings us then to our final governing principle. We must commit ourselves to the right motivation in all that we do. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. 
Whoever serves Christ, literally, the one who is a slave to Christ in this way. That's what a Christian is. A slave of Christ. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as Christ's slave? Because understanding ourselves that, that way will... It will short-circuit a lot of the arrogance that wants to rise up in us before it has a chance to exhibit itself. Whoever values eternity enough to give up temporal preferences for the eternal benefit of their blood-brought brother and sister will receive this benefit that Paul's talking about. If you serve Christ in that way, giving up your temporal preferences because you value eternity enough and you value your blood-bought brothers and sisters enough. If you serve Christ that way, it produces this double benefit. This double benefit Paul talks about here should be our double motivation to be acceptable to God, number one, and to be approved by men, number two. Our, our highest and first motivation is that we would be acceptable to God, that to, to be pleasing to Him, to doing that which accords with His will. It pleases God when His people obey Him. If you want to be pleasing to God in the, in the exercise of your freedoms, then do it in such a way that you value eternal things enough to give up your temporal preferences for the eternal benefit of your brother or sister whom Christ purchased with his own precious blood. You do that and you'll be pleasing to God. The, the other, other motivation that should drive us in our Christian liberties is the approval of men. Now, Paul's not talking about the sinful fear of men. Proverbs 29.25 says the fear of man is a snare. That's not what Paul's talking about. This, this word approved here that he uses, it, it's used of the purifying of metal, where, where metal is heated up enough that all the impurities finally come to the surface and can be removed. It's, it's, it's used of the testing of a soldier. That, that testing of the soldier, that is, it is actually producing in the soldier that, that skill set that he needs. To be approved by men, we mean to, to put ourselves on the fire of purification. We've put ourselves to the trials and the testing in our seeking to please God with our lives. And the result of that is, as Paul says here, that men can see it. Particularly God's people can see it. Your brother or sister is benefiting from your devotion to God. And they can see that you are a servant of of Christ. You can serve Christ by eating, or you can serve Christ by not eating, but you can't serve Christ by harming a brother, or by acting contrary to love, or by acting as if you can just live for yourself and to yourself. And our resistance to this, our resistance to surrendering our rights, to surrendering our freedoms for the sake of our brother or our sister, it reveals something about us. It, it reveals the way in which we have not been living our lives as a living sacrifice to God. 
if we won't surrender this. It reveals the ways we don't see ourselves as a slave of Christ. We see ourselves as fully autonomous, free men. Because the whole life of the Christian is one of self-denial. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Follow me. We're to love God from the heart. We are to love one another sincerely. These have always been the two greatest commandments. They're the twin motivations here in verse 18. To be motivated in every single choice that we make by a desire to please God. And to be motivated in every single decision that we make with a desire to benefit our brother or our sister. That is much, much more difficult than just keeping a set of rules, is it not? It doesn't give us any time to take off. It doesn't give us any time to rest. It doesn't give us any time for mindlessness. That's the call. There's no one who did this better than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is there? No better example of selfless, self-emptying love than him. He could have done lots of things that he chose not to do. He could have done all kinds of things. And he chose not to do them for our eternal benefit. So that those who hated him could be forgiven. He surrendered his rights in his earthly incarnation. Even surrendering his own life so that we could live. Brothers and sisters, let us have this mind of Christ. Let us follow in his example in this for his glory, for the eternal joy of his people whom he loves and whom he bought on the cross. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the challenge that it gives to us. Lord, it, it confronts us. Lord, it calls us to, to greater righteousness than we've walked in. It calls us to greater mindfulness and greater effort even. Even as it proclaims the gospel truth to us that because of the righteousness of Christ, because of his glorious incarnation, because of his sinless life, because of his perfection and his substitutionary death in our place, because of his resurrection from the dead, because of his eternal intercession for us at the right hand of power and his sure promise to return for us. Lord, even as we, we are given that glorious gospel and told to simply, as it pertains to our salvation, to rest in him, to rest in his finished work. Lord, this same scripture calls us to spirit-empowered grace-filled effort. And I pray, Lord, that we would be those who are empowered by your spirit to keep our hand to the plow, to keep at the work. Lord, for the, the good of your church, for the good of this world, for the sake of your kingdom of whom we are ambassadors and citizens, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.